Hello and welcome to Bob Edwards Weekend from PRI, Public Radio International. Los Angeles Times Washington columnist Doyle McManus begins our program with analysis of the week's political news. Then another essay from children's author and illustrator Daniel Pinkwater. And I'll talk with best-selling author Lev Grossman about The Magician's Land. It's the final book of his trilogy about Quentin Coldwater and the magical land of Fillory. Grossman is also the book critic for Time magazine and comes from a family of creative siblings. One brother is a sculptor, another designs video games. And still later in the hour, a new essay from This I Believe. This week we hear from veterinarian Patrick Cleveland. The news is next. Support for Bob Edwards Weekend comes from Sirius XM Radio, where some artists are so important they have their very own channels. It's all Elvis, all the time, on Elvis Radio Live from Graceland. Go to SiriusXM.com for details. This is Bob Edwards Weekend. It's back to school time for the kids, and for some of our favorite adults, it's time to get back on the campaign trail. That's right, there's a presidential election in the distance, and at least on the Republican side, it's anyone's game. Rand Paul, Jeb Bush, Marco Rubio, even Rick Perry, who was recently but controversially indicted for abusing the powers of the Texas governor's office. They're all feverishly fundraising and triangulating their policy positions. Doyle McManus is a columnist for the Los Angeles Times, and he's here to talk about the GOP presidential field. Hi, Doyle. Hello, Bob. I'm fired up and ready to go. <laughs> the presidential election is 800 days away, but you maintain it's worth talking about now, so make your case. You think it's a little early to start talking presidential politics, Not Bob? Not in this town. Really? <laughs> Not in this town, and the candidates don't think it's too early. These guys have hit the road to test the waters, to try out their policy ideas, to recruit early supporters, to recruit early contributors if they can. Uh, this is a really important part of any presidential campaign cycle. Yes, it's the early preseason, but as any baseball fan knows, the preseason can be pretty important. Let's start with Rand Paul, whom we might be able to call the current frontrunner. What puts him in the lead, such as it is? Well, Rand Paul doesn't have a huge lead in the polls. If you look at early polls, and they don't mean a whole lot at this point, big caveat that we always have to have to repeat, but it's true. Okay, Rand Paul has been on top of those polls with somewhere between 10 and 15 percent of the support among Republicans, which isn't really much of a front runner. Uh, what it means is Rand Paul has inherited the supporters that his father, a libertarian icon Ron Paul, had, and he's built on it a little bit. He is presenting an appealing mix of small government not only on the economy, but also in terms of civil liberties and foreign policy. And so what that tells us is that Rand Paul is, if he runs, going to be a serious factor. It sure doesn't tell us how close to the top he's going to finish. When he ran for the Senate, Democrats dismissed him as a libertarian crackpot. He, he said the Civil Rights Act should be optional. Is he more careful now with what he says? Uh, he is. I mean, he still breaks from the Republican Party leadership on a, a lot of issues, particularly on issues 
of foreign policy, where he does not like military intervention, and civil liberties, where he does not like the NSA domestic surveillance programs. But he has been working very hard to show that he is no crackpot. He has been he has been reaching out, for example, to minorities. He's been doing a lot of events and speeches before African-American groups to explain what he really meant about civil rights. Um, and he has been reaching out to more conventional foreign policy establishment groups to, to try and show that he is not as unconventional as he sounds. So he certainly looks like a guy who is trying to polish off the rough edges and get ready to run for president. Now, Jeb Bush is your model for the establishment-style Republican, but even his own mother said we don't need another Bush in the White House. Yeah, and that, that couldn't help very much. You really do need to start with your mother on your side. <laughs> uh, but that also tells us something, I think, about where Jeb Bush's head is because all reports are from his family, from people around him, is he is genuinely undecided about whether to do this or not, whether he should be uh, the voice for moderate conservatives in the Republican Party. And if he runs, he would run with at least three handicaps at the start uh, before he even goes anywhere. Number one, he really does represent an older era of Republicanism. He predates the Tea Party. There's not an ounce of Tea Party anywhere in Jeb Bush's veins. Uh, he's in favor of, of government action, not, not government shrinkage. And number two, on immigration, He's a moderate, and that's not actually the most popular place to be among a Republican primary voters right now. And number three, he is one of the champions of the education reform policies called the Common Core. And among uh, Tea Party conservatives, the Common Core has become massively unpopular. So he would have a very uphill battle. Not too long ago, it was a foregone conclusion that Hillary Clinton had the Democratic nomination locked up, but not anymore. Um, no, not really, because uh, now that she is a pre-candidate, if you like, she still says she hasn't made a decision, but she too is certainly acting as if she plans to run. She's having to talk about her positions. And once you talk about positions, uh, well, somebody's going to disagree with you. And, and just this past uh, few weeks, she got into a fascinating argument with President Obama over foreign policy, beginning with her book about her time as Secretary of State and then uh, continuing with a couple of interviews in which she said she would have been tougher on Syria, she would have sent aid to Syrian rebels earlier, and she would have had a different approach on Egypt. She would have been more skeptical about helping, helping the democratic insurgency there. Well, uh, the problem is that an awful lot of Democrats like Barack Obama's cautious, minimalist approach to foreign policy. Uh, they like uh, his allergy to military intervention anywhere, and they don't like hearing that Hillary Clinton is more hawkish, even though she was always more hawkish than Barack Obama. So those liberals need a candidate. Who's that candidate going to be? Well, Elizabeth Warren, the senator from Massachusetts, says she's not going to do it know-how. So the liberals have a champion now in Bernie Sanders, the independent candidate from Vermont. We'll just have to see if anybody other than Bernie Sanders gets in as well. Remember when the only thing between Hillary Clinton and the presidency was Chris Christie? Ah, Chris Christie, the, the fabulously corpulent and effective and tough-spoken governor of New Jersey, but then something got in between Chris Christie and the Republican nomination, 
and that was the George Washington Bridge. And the, all of those emails that showed that his aides had set up a traffic jam on the George Washington Bridge to punish the mayor of Fort Lee, New Jersey. And that one is still being uh, investigated and hashed out, but that hasn't stopped Chris Christie from trying again. Uh, he is out giving speeches, he's out raising money, he has spent time in New Hampshire and Iowa, and here is the tip-off, he has lost something like 100 pounds to get into fighting trim, and he actually shows up in the polls uh, in the upper echelon of potential Republican candidates. There are Republican moderates out there who are looking for a champion like Chris Christie, but you have to worry about a candidate whose chances really at this point still are in the hands of the U.S. attorney. Is Rick Perry really going to make another run at it? He is. As they might say in Texas, Governor Perry looks as serious as a heart attack. His fellow Texan, Senator Ted Cruz, seems already to be president of the House of Representatives. Uh, president of the Tea Party faction in the House of Representatives, that's true, and uh, uncrowned king of Tea Party zealots around the country. Uh, Ted Cruz draws big audiences, uh, raises a lot of grassroots money, and has a serious problem. He is loathed by the rest of the United States Senate because he doesn't play ball, because he's an insurgent within the Republican Party. Never mind the Democrats. He says he wants to overthrow the leadership of the Republican Party. An awful lot of donors, uh, if you think about the, the money primary, are very skeptical of Ted Cruz. And there's really not much of an appeal in what Ted Cruz talks about to the center of the electorate, to the moderates who, who often swing elections. Uh, and one other potential problem that we ought to mention, Ted Cruz was born in Canada. Now, an American president is supposed to be native-born. Ted Cruz's mother was an American. He has renounced his Canadian citizenship. Well, we'll see you in court, Senator. What about Marco Rubio? Marco Rubio, the young Cuban-American senator from Florida, was the front runner for about 15 minutes there. He led the polls there for a little bit of time because, because he was uh, in the first crop of uh, interesting, appealing, conservative, Tea Party-style senators elected uh, back in 2010. It looked as if he had it all, um, but then suddenly he got moderate. He supported that immigration bill in the Senate, because he's from Florida. He understands immigration. Uh, he wanted to be part of an outreach by the Republican Party to Latinos and Hispanics, but that bill turned out to be massively unpopular among the conservative base of the Republican Party, and so uh, Senator Rubio decided he wasn't in favor of his own bill after all, and uh, that kind of flip-flop never looks very good. There's been lots of commentary recently about how independents are not moderates, and moderates are not independents. How are these two classes of voters going to figure into the 2016 race? You're right to separate the two out, Bob. Uh, moderates, you know, if you ask uh, voters uh, whether they consider themselves conservatives, liberals, or moderates, it's not quite a one-third, one-third, one-third split, but it's close enough to think about it that way. And the one-third of the voters who are moderates usually do decide an election in the end. Now, in the primaries, of course, the mix is a little different because primary voters in the Republican Party are disproportionately conservative obviously in the Democratic Party, disproportionately liberal. But the moderates are still going to be vitally important, and a candidate who wants to win the general election in the end has to figure out a way uh, to appeal to them. 
we often talk about independence. The problem with that label is it's usually misleading because there are an awful lot of thoroughly partisan voters, Republicans who've never voted for a Democrat, Democrats who've never voted for a Republican. They'll tell a pollster, I'm an independent because that's part of their psychological self-definition, if you like. But it's a label that's becoming less and less useful. Republicans got a lot of mileage out of their Southern strategy. What was that, and will it still have gas for the next guy? The Southern strategy, of course, uh, we just had a celebration of the 40th anniversary of Richard Nixon's resignation, and Richard Nixon was one of the champions of the Southern strategy because that was the Republican Party's appeal to white voters in the South who were upset by the Democratic Party's turn to the left and the Democratic Party's sponsorship of, of uh, civil rights legislation in the 1960s. There are an awful lot of people who would say there was some veiled racism involved. Uh, a, a smart Republican politicians always tried to steer it away from that and make it about, about law and order. Uh, but you still have that phenomenon that Republicans, including Mitt Romney in 2012, generally succeed in winning a majority of the white vote. The problem they face is that the white vote is no longer a majority of the American electorate, or you can't use it to compile a majority of the American electorate anymore. Uh, the Republicans internally uh, need desperately to figure out a way to appeal to people who are not white Southerners, including African-Americans, including Latinos and Hispanics, and they are taking a long time to figure out exactly how to do that. Is there anyone sneaking up from the cheap seats who is not a national name but has impressed you as a politician, like maybe a certain U.S. senator from Illinois circa 2007? Uh, well, sure. The United States Senate is always full of people who think they could be a president and in many cases could be a president. And I will name two Republicans who are worth watching in the future. One is Mike Lee of Utah, a thoroughly conservative, Tea Party-attuned uh, Republican who is a lot like Ted Cruz, only a lot more likable. Uh, and the other in the moderate to conservative camp is uh, Bob Corker of Tennessee, former mayor of Chattanooga, uh, a real problem solver who has tried to be one of the people creating bridges between Democrats and Republicans in the Senate. Uh, both of those are, are interesting, uh, interesting Republicans who could run for president a while from now, but they don't appear to be doing it so right now. And, and uh, there's a very simple reason for that. If you think about the long list we've been talking about, the one thing this party doesn't need right now is more presidential candidates. Thank you, Doyle. Thank you, Bob. Doyle McManus is a columnist with the Los Angeles Times. And now, from current politics to ancient history, children's book author and illustrator and sometimes sculptor Daniel Pinkwater shares the story of his attempts to commune with the stonemasons who came before him, using as many of his senses as possible. When you want to leave a message for ages yet unborn, you make it in 3D and out of something hard. Paintings are handy for patching the roof. Manuscripts give comforting heat when burned. And poems are made by fools like some who are listening at this moment. If you want to be sure that your contribution to culture has a chance of being appreciated much, much later, hack it out of granite. So it is that students of sculpture always make friends with a distant past. Your Egyptian or Sumerian stonewhacker employed pretty much the identical tools and methods to the modern exponent of the art and no doubt had many of the same problems. 
When you spend your days making graven or cast or hammered together images, you start to feel kinship with these old dead guys. Thus, as a young would-be sculpturer, I visited the art museums a lot, but no less the museums of ethnology. My favorite haunts were the Brooklyn Museum, a special treasure with its halls of Pacific, Northwest Indian, and African and Oceanic art, and the American Museum of Natural History, which has ten of everything the Brooklyn's got, but not displayed as well. And there was one other place, in its way better than either museum, a shop on the west side of Manhattan called the House of Antiquities. This place sold to the public artifacts that were completely authentic, but not of museum quality. The various dynasties of Egypt left behind as many scarabs and faience beads as we will leave Coke bottles. Likewise, earthenware lamps, little pitcher-like jobs, were the light bulbs of the ancient world, and frangible as they are, enough survived that the House of Antiquities could make a profit selling them at seven or eight bucks a time. Of course, the appeal of this shop was that you could handle everything and even take it home with you if you desired. It was a little hole in the wall in the bad neighborhood. You'd ring the bell, they'd unlock the door. In attendance was not some desiccated scholar, but a friendly, zoftig woman of the Bronx, the best kind, whose enthusiasm and informality made the experience even more like visiting a shop in Rome or Constantinople in the very old days. I think her name was Edith. Everything I bought there I have since given away. Some bronze Byzantine rings, a set of arrowheads from Amlash, an 18th century Siamese Buddha, a Talmaic coin with a wonderful head of Zeus, his hair and whiskers curling everywhere. That piece I kept the longest, carrying it in my pocket for years. It was there, in the House of Antiquities, that I tasted a mummy case. Edith had gone into the back to answer the phone or fetch some additional artifacts to show me, and I was scrutinizing this very nice mummy case, not special, like everything in the place, just a good example of a late dynastic wooden, gessoed, and polychrome box in good condition. The lid was off and stood beside the thing. The interior painting was in fine shape. One of the edges was chipped, revealing an inch or two of plain wood, very smooth with tiny wormholes. I'd been looking the object up and down, touching it lightly, turning the lid around to look at the painting on the other side, and now I tasted the wood. I had and have no idea why. I touched the tip of my tongue to that chipped spot. It was not an inconclusive experience. I felt an electric jolt that went right down to my heels. For a hundredth of a second, I thought I felt a blast of hot, dry air and may have glimpsed or almost glimpsed a sky and horizon illuminated by a sun that had not shone for millennia. The only physical experience I remember which was comparable was the time my brother gave me a pinch of powdered pit viper, which some Asians use as a tonic. Edith returned and perceiving my expression gave herself away as a fellow mummy taster. "'What did you do?' she asked accusingly. "'I tasted the mummy case.' "'Never do that,' she said. "'You don't know what sort of chemicals they use on those things.' "'I read somewhere that in the Middle Ages they take ground-up mummy as medicine.' "'Well, keep your tongue in your mouth around here, Edith,' said. "'That mummy case is dynamite.' You can see that's why the shop was superior to a museum in many ways. You can't learn a thing by looking in the glass at the natural history. Children's book author and illustrator Daniel Pinkwater. His most recent novel is titled Bushman Lives. You can read more of his work and listen to his podcast at his website, pinkwater.com. 
after the break, the fantasy stories of Leb Grossman. You're listening to Bob Edwards Weekend. Welcome back to Bob Edwards Weekend, produced by Sirius XM Radio and distributed by PRI, Public Radio International. Time Magazine book critic and best-selling author Leb Grossman has always been a fantasy geek, so imagine his delight when the current reigning god of the genre, Game of Thrones author George R. R. Martin, said of The Magicians, the first book in Grossman's fantasy trilogy, it is to Harry Potter as a shot of Irish whiskey is to a glass of weak tea. The trilogy's second book, The Magician's King, came out in 2011, and now fans can read what happens to Quentin Coldwater and the Land of Fillory in the final book, The Magician's Land. The Magician's King ended with Quentin banished from Fillory, and this third book starts with Quentin taking refuge in his old college, Breakbill's Academy of Magic. We start our interview with author Lev Grossman reading a passage from his new book, The Magician's Land. It wasn't nostalgia exactly. Quentin didn't miss the old days, but he did miss Fillory. It was only when he was finally alone in his room, not a king's room, a teacher's room, a very junior teacher's room, with the door shut that Quentin allowed himself to really, truly long for it. He yearned for it. He felt the full force of what he'd lost. He lay down, stared up at the faraway ceiling, and thought of everything that was happening there without him. The journeys, adventures, and feasts, all the various magical wonders all across the length and breadth of Fillory, the rivers and the oceans and trees and meadows, and he wanted to be there so badly that it felt like his desire should be enough to physically pull him out of his flat hard bed, out of this world, and into the one he belonged in. But it wasn't. And it didn't. How is this longing different from what Quentin felt when he was a kid, when he wished he could go to Fillory but knew it wasn't real? I'm very glad you asked that. It goes to the heart of what the book is about. This is the third book in a trilogy, and uh, what we're after, of course, is closure. And what we see is Quentin, he returns to a lot of places he's been in the first two books, and he meets a lot of the same people. But we see, because he's repeating these things, we see that he's not the same. He passes challenges uh, that he was afraid of uh, the first time around and stands up to people he couldn't stand up to. And here... We see Quentin uh, doing, and I, I, I can't think of a better word for it, he's mourning. Uh, he's feeling sadness. It's surprising how difficult it is sometimes to feel sadness. Just sit there and, and let it flow. But that's what he's doing. Uh, and I think it's the best thing he could do at that moment. Having lost Fillory, he's feeling the loss. Would the Quentin readers met in The Magicians have been able to deal with losing Fillory? He wouldn't have been able to deal. He wasn't ready for that. Uh, he would become bitter. He would be angry. Uh, he would feel depression, which is not the same thing as sadness. Uh, what we're seeing right now is a Quentin. Uh, he's, he's grown up, for lack of a better word. Fantasy is often about uh, coming of age, which is a, a cliche, but it's a very real thing that everybody has to do. And it's not so easy to do it. Uh, and what we see now is a Quentin who's come of age. What does maturity mean in a fantasy world? Isn't the whole point of Fillory and its inspiration, Narnia, that this is a place of innocence and youth? One of the things that made me want to write the book in the first place was, uh, you know, I grew up on reading the Chronicles of Narnia, and I loved them. I loved them just to distraction. But, you know, Lewis was, a, was uh, he was in love with youth. He was in love with childhood. 
uh, and innocence, and he saw a lot of power in them, and it was a power that you lost when you grew up. And that's a very real and compelling vision to me, but I started asking questions when I myself got to my 30s, which is, uh, is that it? Is it all over when you grow up? Or is there a kind of magic uh, and a kind of power uh, you get in maturity? And I decided there was, and I wanted to write a book that, that showed that, um, and it showed it quite starkly by being in the tradition of Lewis and these writers who did place magic as something that was in childhood. Um, but take that magic and, and, and give it to adults and see what that feels like. One character in this book, Rupert Chatwin, is critical of the black and white morals of the Fillory books. Is this Rupert's or Lev's opinion? <laughs> it's, a, it's a little bit of a, of a gloss. I like uh, putting opinions that I won't cop to myself in the mouths of my characters. Um, creates a little bit of uh, deniability. But yeah, there is uh, built into the fantasy genre. It's part of the tradition. It's part of the conventions. Uh, there is a certain moral simplicity when you're reading Tolkien and you meet, you meet an orc. You can tell he's evil because he looks evil. Everybody who's bad looks bad. People who are good tend to look good. Uh, and it's all right to kill them. Uh, it's all right to kill an orc because he's an evil creature. But, you know, it's not, it's not always um, so easy uh, in real life to tell the orcs and the humans apart. Do we lose something of the fantasy world by making it more complicated? <laughs> it would be my position that that we don't. Fantasy is was a, is a genre that is itself growing up. When I started writing The Magicians, it was partly in response to books like um, Neil Gaiman's American Gods or Susanna Clarke, uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. These were books that really complicated fantasy. They really made fantasy, wrote fantasy that was beautiful and, 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 and virtuosic and, and self-aware in ways that I hadn't seen before. Uh, and I felt like there was a little bit of a movement afoot, and I wanted to be part of it. And one of the things that I discovered is when you take a genre and you challenge its central assumptions, you uh, challenge the conventions it's built on, uh, just the way you know Alan Moore did with um, uh, Watchmen and the superhero stories, or William Gibson did with uh, the cyberpunk books, uh, Neuromancer, uh, when you challenge a genre, it, gets, it doesn't fall apart, it gets stronger. That's what I did here. Uh, I, I went after some of the, the sacred cows of fantasy, and I feel as though uh, it doesn't make the, fa the, the genre weaker, it doesn't fall apart. Um, it makes it more interesting. Your kings and queens are fantasy savvy. These guys know they're Tolkien and rolling, and yet one character, Elliot, says he doesn't deal in fiction. He was in the messy business of writing facts. What's the trick of writing characters who aren't fooled by the genre? Well, you know, it began uh, with a, almost a thought experiment, and it was a thought experiment about Harry Potter. Uh, I was interested in Harry. I, I'm a huge Harry Potter fan, and uh, I wanted to write a story in that vein. And I, I thought about the fact that Harry, when he shows up at Hogwarts, he doesn't appear to ever have read a fantasy novel, uh, which I found odd. I, I feel like if, he, if I grew up in a closet with my sort of uh, abusive um, foster family, uh, all I would have done would be sit and, and reread C.S. Lewis and Ursula Le Guin over and over again, uh, which I more or less did anyway. And so I experimented with the idea, well, if there really were a school for magic, I imagine the people who went there would themselves have read a lot of fantasy, and when they got there, they would um, compare the experience they were having to the books they'd read, and they'd be forced to deal with the fact that life isn't like fiction, um, and sometimes you're not the hero of the story. Uh, and that's something that, that Quentin has to come to terms with, and they all do in different ways. Who else did you draw from for this book? I drew a lot from C.S. Lewis uh, and from Rowling, and uh, I wear those influences on my sleeve. 
but uh, I think one of the things that complicates my fantasy writing is that I have a background in literary fiction, for lack of a better better term for it. Uh, I I went to graduate school in literature, uh, uh, so I've I've read heavily, very heavily outside the genre. Um, so I draw, for example, a lot on um, Evelyn Waugh. Brideshead Revisited is a, is a major influence on these books, the way he depicts moving from innocence to experience. And uh, T.S. Eliot, The Wasteland, was a major influence on this book in particular, which is a book about a broken land that needs to be healed. Uh, and that's what Eliot was writing about. So is this you appeasing your literary upbringing? You're, you're the son of writers. <laughs> appeasing is a very ugly word. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not doing anybody any favors. Uh, I just, you know, I was, I'm, I'm looking for the language that can allow me to talk about these feelings that I'm, that I'm, that I'm processing, and, 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 and that's what I found. One of the exciting things for me initially about The Magicians was that I felt so rebellious writing it. My parents are English professors. Uh, they were and uh, very committed to the canon and, and, and great books and, and the high literary tradition. Uh, and it felt so deliciously forbidden to write fantasy. It felt so filthy and unrespectable. Uh, I had never enjoyed writing anything so much. Uh, and it felt like uh, I was having a, a little, you know, midlife adolescent rebellion. Uh, and I enjoyed it. So what can you do in that world that you can't do with realism? It's a good question. Um, Partly you can do sort of anything you want um, because you're not bound by uh, the laws of, of physics or any other laws. Fantasy is about um, taking things that are inside you and, and putting them out in the world. When, when the characters do magic, it's as if those feelings that they have inside them, uh, which we have trapped inside us and to which the world, outside world is totally indifferent. Uh, in a fantasy world, the outside world is not indifferent. You can use those feelings. You can cast spells with them. If you've got monsters lurking in your subconscious, they don't stay in your subconscious. In fantasy, they get out and they run around, and you have to wrestle with them in the real world. Not only are your characters more mature in this book, but the magic is more adult as well. What correlation is there between your characters' lives and their magic? This is a book uh, in part about, in a funny way, it's about work. You know, the first two books were really about uh, Quentin understanding who he was and, and where his place was in the world. Now he's come of age and it's time for him to roll up his sleeves and, 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 and do something with his life and, and this magic that he's been given. That's something you can only really do uh, when you're mature. And when you're mature, you, you, you start to feel your real power. You start to feel uh, like you, you're, you're looking for something you can do that will last, that means something. And Quentin finds that and uh, there really is almost no better feeling in the world. Quentin's father dies in this book, and it has a surprising effect on his magical abilities. What were you exploring with this? In part, I was exploring uh, my own life, because my father was dying as I was writing this book. He, uh, he actually passed away in June. And I think I was in part rehearsing that experience to see what it would feel like and to get ready for it, because I knew it was going to happen. He was very ill. Um, and the strange thing about it, I think... Um, I don't know if this is true for everyone, but I think for sons and fathers, um, there's a sense when your father passes away that you are now the man of the house. You're the man in charge. There isn't a, a, somebody looking over your shoulder who's going to uh, rescue you if you screw up uh, and fix your mistakes. And uh, you feel a great grief when your father dies, um, but you also feel a new kind of power, a new kind of responsibility. Uh, it's your job now to be the man around the place, whatever that means. And it is strangely empowering. 
My conversation with writer and Time Magazine book critic Lev Grossman about his book, The Magician's Land, will continue after this break. You're listening to Bob Edwards Weekend. Welcome back to Bob Edwards Weekend. I'm speaking with best-selling writer Lev Grossman about his book, The Magician's Land, the final installment in his trilogy. Inspired by Harry Potter, Narnia, and plenty of more and less literary works, Grossman consciously brought a 21st century world to his fantasy series, particularly in how he wrote magic. Well, I wanted to write magic in a very particular way when I wrote The Magicians. Uh, I had always had a quietly a, a little bit of a pet peeve, two pet peeves with the way magic was, was being described in fantasy. One was I felt it was too easy. I, I, I felt as though it had become a little bit domesticated. You know, it's something you can teach kids, like in, in Harry Potter. Uh, it had become, it had lost some of its uh, wildness and its difficulty. I, if I felt as though if magic were easy, everybody would do it, but everybody doesn't do it. Uh, so the characters, they have to work, they have to, to, to give years of their life in order to try to master these skills. And the other thing I felt about magic was that I didn't, I felt as though it was a little bit under-described. I felt when you, when you, when you had someone casting a spell, uh, you'd wear that this, this, I don't know, a flash of light or a sort of crackling noise or something like that. Uh, but I wanted to push harder on that. I wanted to think about how would Hemingway describe magic? How would Virginia Woolf describe magic if they were writing a fantasy novel? And I started to want to sort of bring in a lot of feelings uh, that, that maybe you don't hear about so much. Like, how does, what does it magic feel like as it's passing through your hands, out your fingertips into the world? Is there a smell in the room after you cast a spell? Uh, I wanted to, to, to put people, when, when, when a spell gets cast, I want the reader to be in the room and to feel it happen as if it's real. You wrote of it, the thing about magic, the real kind, it didn't make excuses, and it was never funny. Yeah, one of the things I loved about, about uh, magic, and, and fantasy in general, um, is that it really demands of you a very raw emotional honesty. All good writing does, um, but somehow I feel fantasy in particular, um, it asks you to really lay yourself bare, and when you do, you can't be kidding, and you can't be ironic. You don't get to put caveats in there. Um, you really just have to lay yourself out there because th that's what magic about is about. If you said a spell as a joke, it wouldn't work. If a spell's going to work, you really, you've got to mean it 100%. And the same is true of fantasy. There are two parallel stories in this book, Quentin's experiences on Earth and Janet and Elliot's back in Fillory. Which of these stories came easier? The one that came easier was, uh, was the one set in Fillory. Um, maybe because it's in part a more conventional story. Uh, it is a convention of fantasy that if you have uh, an enchanted land, that land must be dying and fading away. Um, the same way in Middle-earth, the uh, Third Age, I think it is, is giving way to the Fourth, the elves are fading away. Um, and you've already, you feel as though it's slipping away around you. And I wanted to put Janet and Elliot uh, in that place, in a fantasy land that was dying, and I wanted them to be pissed off about it. I didn't want them to, uh, to close their eyes and calmly accept it. I wanted them to fight back, and, and that's what they do. Quentin returns to teach in the place where magic started for him, Breakbills Academy. How did Breakbills change for you as a writer since writing The, the Magicians? I wanted to bring Quentin back to, to Breakbills. I felt as though uh, when he left it, uh, I wasn't quite done with it. And when he returns, yeah, he returns as a, a, a very low-ranking member of the faculty. He's more or less an adjunct professor. Um, and I wanted it to be, in a funny way, I want to say sort of demystified. When he went initially, uh, he, was, he was terrified of, of, the, of the professors. 
uh, and in awe of everyone and everything. I wanted him to return uh, with a sense of mastery and, uh, a, and, a, and a little bit of a sense that uh, well, now he knows what goes on in the senior common room. Uh, and actually, it's quite, it's quite dull and petty. Uh, it's, it's not, you know, the magic isn't gone. There are still very strange and very dangerous things lurking in Breakbills, uh, as we see in great detail. Um, but Quentin's take on them is a, a little bit different now. This book also introduces a new set of magicians to readers, including Plum, who becomes a central character. Tell me about her. Well, it, it's one of the um, one of the threads running through the books um, is that magicians tend to have something wrong with them, and uh, they tend to be broody and, uh, and 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 moody, and they have a melancholy streak. And Plum does too, but it's not uppermost. Uh, uppermost uh, with Plum is somebody who does, she does not brood. She doesn't sit on her hands uh, and 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 bite her fingernails. Uh, she has a kind of uh, a can-do attitude. And I wanted to prove to readers, but first of all to myself, that uh, I could write a character like that and have them be interesting. They didn't have to be uh, a nervous wreck or a manic depressive. They could be somebody who more is more or less on an even keel. And I wanted to show uh, someone like that who was quite interesting and also uh, who could do her own kind of magic. Not all magic has to come from pain necessarily. Was it nice to have someone new to explore? She's good company, uh, and one of her, one of her, uh, one of the things I like about her is that uh, while she admires Quentin and 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 knows that he he's a he's a highly skilled magician, she's not afraid of him, uh, and she's not afraid to give him a hard time, which uh, I quite enjoyed. I've spent about ten years writing Quentin, uh, and sometimes I've wanted to give him a hard time, and with Plum there, uh, I can actually do it. Since the magicians came out, you've become an important member of the fantasy set. What's it been like to find yourself as a creator of that world and not just a consumer of it? It's the it's the most wonderful thing, and it's strange. And and uh, uh, if I weren't a fantasy novelist, I would say that it was a magical experience. Maybe I could say it anyway. Uh, I mean, a, a couple of weeks ago, um, I was in San Diego and I sat on a panel with George R. R. Martin. Well, George R. R. Martin is uh, one of the main reasons that I write fantasy. Uh, reading his um, Song of Ice and Fire novels, which they're bigger now than they were, but they, he started writing them in the 90s, uh, and they were major inspirations to me, uh, and I thought of him as this well-nigh godlike being. Uh, and then I found myself sitting at a table with him, um, and uh, he and I were taking questions from fans. It's a really, <laughs> it's a glorious feeling. It's a very good feeling, uh, and I think it's not an accident that um, Quentin has some very satisfying experiences in this book. He finds work that he that is very that's very satisfying for him and very meaningful, uh, and I think that's a reflection of the fact that that I found that kind of work too. How has writing these three books changed your relationship with fantasy? Let's see. That uh, that's a good question. Before I started writing these books, I had uh, a funny relationship with fantasy. I read it constantly all the time but then I had another sort of I had a sort of double life as a reader where I read a lot of literary fiction as well and I tended to write about literary fiction uh, as a critic uh, but not so much the fantasy and I didn't sort of talk about it with people Uh, writing fantasy first and foremost involved my kind of coming out to myself as a fantasy reader and a fantasy reader who uh, accepted and celebrated it It was was, it's it's something that uh, uh, you know it's an important part of, of who I am uh, and I was also a bit uh, afraid of fantasy. Uh, it, it it seemed so. Um, it's uh, this sort of 
wonderfully um, powerful, kind of free way of telling stories. I never believed I could do it. And then I tried it and I did. So, you know, being, being a fantasy reader is, and, and fantasy writer is, 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 is now, it's a big part of who I am. I'm talking with Lev Grossman. His latest book is titled The Magician's Land. It completes a trilogy about the adventures of Quentin Coldwater in the fantastical world of Fillory. Game of Thrones, based on George R. R. Martin's book, is HBO's highest-rated show ever. I've seen promos for other fantasy series. What's going on in our society that makes this a good time for fantasy writers? It is a good time, isn't it? Uh, and the, the, I think there is something going on. Uh, I'm very conscious that, you know, in the in the late 20th century, 80s and 90s, the big pop culture crazes were uh, tended to be science fiction. They were tended to be Star Wars and Star Trek. And then Harry Potter arrived, and hot on his heels came the uh, the Lord of the Rings movies. And uh, suddenly we're in the 90s, and this Twilight, the reigning preoccupations of our culture were fantasy and not science fiction. Somehow we uh, collectively, are we shifted our gaze a little bit away from science fiction, a little bit more towards fantasy. Uh, and I think we must kind of as a people maybe have gotten a little bit interested in the questions that fantasy asks and the answers that it gives. Science fiction is so preoccupied with, with technology and how we interact with it uh, and how it's shaping our future. Uh, I wonder if we maybe lost a little a little faith in technology and wondered maybe if fantasy could offer us something, magic could offer us something. But for whatever reason, that's what people seem to need right now. It seems to be the kind of stories they need to tell and the kind they need to read. Fantasy used to be a very small, intimate club. Has all this popularity been good for the genre? Well, certainly, you know, when I was a, when I was a child, growing up uh, in the 80s, fantasy felt like a very small club and not a club that a lot of people wanted to be a part of. There was, uh, one felt uh, something of a stigma. And that has changed more than I ever could have believed possible. Uh, the idea that a fantasy novel could be a worldwide uh, obsession, a fantasy movie or TV show be, you know, a huge, huge hit. Um, that idea d did not exist. Uh, one misses the niche, the club, however stigmatized it was. But um, people needed fantasy, and uh, they've begun consuming it in, in enormous numbers. And it's been only good for the genre. People are writing it. People are doing crazy things with it they never did before. It's become very vital. Uh, it's a good time to be a fantasy fan. Mm -hmm. And uh, I can't blame people for watching Game of Thrones because it's fantastic. You've written books that are not fantasy. Is there crossover between the two audiences? Oh, there is, definitely. Uh, the Magicians in particular, I think, a attracts a, a double audience of, people, of, of fantasy fans, but also a lot of people who read literary fiction pick it up. Very, very often uh, I get someone saying, I, I don't like fantasy, but I like this, or this is the first fantasy novel I ever read. It, and it's interesting because um, you realize that, that fantasy readers uh, are in some ways much more adventurous than, than literary readers. Fantasy readers will venture out of the fantasy aisle into... Um, literary fiction if they see something that attracts their attention. Uh, less often, I think, do I see literary readers going into the fantasy aisle. You're a book critic for Time magazine, and you write fiction. Is there a transition you have to mentally make as you go from critic to writer? When I'm writing fiction, uh, the critic goes away. Don't know where he goes, but he, he, he gets the hell out of there. Uh, he knows that, that he's, he's not wanted at that particular moment. I think it would be uh, rather paralyzing if I felt as though the book critic 
of Time magazine was looking over my shoulder uh, as I wrote because he would see how terrible my early drafts are, uh, and I, I wouldn't be able to go on. The Magicians was optioned for a TV series a few years ago. What's the latest with that? Well, it was. It was optioned by Fox, uh, and, and, and Fox had a script written for it, and uh, it was a terrific script, and they did not make it. Um, they shelved it. And eventually, as options do, it, it, the rights reverted back to me, uh, and it was optioned again, this time by uh, a couple of other writers who, who wrote a great script, and they sold it to Sci-Fi. And that's where we are now. We are... Um, uh, we're we're casting and and we're we're getting a director. They're they're going to they're going to build break bills or find someplace that looks a lot like break bills. It's pretty tremendously exciting. Uh, you know, this is the last book and the trilogy, The Magician's Land. But I'm I'm happy that it's kind of starting all over again in a new medium. So, what's your role in it? I believe my role uh, is as I believe I have a title, and the title is something like creative consultant, <laughs> which means that I can I can say whatever I like, and they can listen to me or, or not. Much of the magician's land is about loss and acceptance. Was this in part for you as the series uh, came to a close? Are you really ready to leave these people behind? I think so. I think so. When I started writing the magicians, it was it was I was dealing with with, with some very pressing, rather difficult situations and, 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 and needs and emotions that I was dealing with. Uh, and the Magician's Trilogy, in a way, has been a way for me to, uh, to process those feelings uh, and to some extent to exorcise them. And uh, I think it worked because I feel like I want to go off now and, and tell stories um, in another world about, about other people. Uh, and it's sad. I'm doing my own mourning, just as, as, as Quentin mourned getting kicked out of Fillory. Uh, I'm mourning getting kicked out of the magician's books. Um, but I also uh, I also realized it was time. Are you done with fantasy too? I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think I am done with fantasy. When I started writing fantasy, that's when I found my voice as a writer. And I felt as though I was getting my real emotions on the page for the first time. I don't think I could ever go back. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Lev Grossman. His book is The Magician's Land. And this brings me to what I believe. I believe that life is a spiritual struggle. I believe in being gracious to others. I believe in the power of science fiction. I believe in singing badly. I believe that God lives in the space between people. I believe in so much more than freedom of speech. And I believe that it is time we all took a stand. This I believe. Nine years ago, Hurricane Katrina devastated much of Louisiana and the Mississippi Gulf Coast. For those of us who saw the aftermath on television, the event has faded from memory. But for the people who lived through it, like this I Believe essayist Patrick Cleveland, Hurricane Katrina changed their lives forever. I moved to the Mississippi Gulf Coast 16 years ago to work in my first job as an associate veterinarian. After a while, I met a girl named Nicole and we eventually married. Nicole's parents owned a house right on the beach in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi. Nicole's father was an engineer and he built a very strong house of steel and concrete. We had done very well in that house during storms until Hurricane Katrina. On the morning of August 29, 2005, our lives changed forever. Nicole walked outside and found the tide out farther than she had ever seen. Then the wind started blowing in and the water started rising. Before long, the waves were pounding into the concrete house and through strong wooden shutters. The waves punched through, and the ground floor and basement began to fill up. 
The water rose very rapidly. The refrigerator floated and banged around the kitchen as a result of the relentless waves. We moved to the second floor, and before long, the water was banging against the second-story windows. In short order, the second-story wall was gone, and nothing separated us from this terrible storm. We held onto the wall studs as best we could. I was standing on the second floor in ankle-deep water, and the waves were over my head. Sometimes waves would knock us down, and we would scramble to our feet. Nicole's mother, Joan, needed our help getting out of the water several times. The storm kept intensifying. A very large wave knocked us down, and while we were catching our breath, another one washed us out. I became pinned under the roof of the back porch, and I had to push myself deeper into the water to get out. I swam and thrashed and held on to a tree. The rest of the family was nowhere to be found. Waves would wash me out of one tree, and I would grab onto another. My clothes were washed off, leaving me scratched and cold. After about eight hours, the storm calmed and the wind changed directions. I had no idea how high up in the tree I was or how deep the water was. My lungs were full of water, and I was not doing very well. But I knew I had to get out of that tree. I also knew that I did not want to swim for hours. In the distance riding the waves, I spotted something white. This object would descend down the eight-foot waves and rise back up. It kept coming in my direction. I soon figured out it was one of those circular life preservers found on the side of ships. It kept coming my way. I then decided when it came close enough, I would go for it. Amazingly, this ring-shaped float came directly to me. I just knew it was sent from God. I jumped out and floated on that white ring until I could stand on land. Nicole found a different tree to hang on to. She told me that a board kept hitting her in the back of the head, and when she turned around to rid herself of this nuisance, she found my wedding ring hanging on a bent nail. Both of these happenings were too powerful for me to believe they were a coincidence. I believe these rings of hope were God's way of telling us that he loves us and has a plan for us. Even though Nicole's parents did not survive the storm, through all of the sadness, I still felt the love and comfort of God. I believe he has a plan for me. Patrick Cleveland is a horse veterinarian. He and his wife chose not to rebuild after Hurricane Katrina. Instead, they bought a home five miles from the water where they live with their children today. His essay was independently produced by Dan Getterman for This I Believe Incorporated. You can find more information about This I Believe, including a searchable database of more than 100,000 essays and pointers for submitting your own essay at the website thisibelieve.org. Bob Edwards Weekend is produced by Ed McNulty, Dan Bloom, Chad Campbell, Kim Dawson, Andy Cubis, Christy Miners, Bridget McCarthy, Jeffrey Reddick, and Shelley Tillman. For more information about today's guests and to hear this program again, find us on Facebook. Search Bob Edwards Show. There you can send us messages, see who's coming into our studios, and more. Thanks for listening. This program is distributed by PRI and produced by SiriusXM Radio 
home of the Bob Edwards Show. In-depth interviews on arts, culture, and politics heard every weekday. PRI Public Radio International.